mothers and mother lovers. Welcome to another episode of Hella Smart Mothers. So I don't know if everyone is aware of this, but May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And I think that mental health is a very, very big topic, a very necessary topic, especially here in the United States with all of the crazy that is going on right now. And, you know, everyone has mental health, just like everyone has physical health. Some people's mental health is, I'm not going to say perfect, because I think we all have issues and everyone could use a therapist. (laughs) But, you know, some people have mental health disorders and that's what, you know, manifests itself as depression, anxiety, more severe things like bipolar, schizophrenia, that kind of stuff. And the sad thing though, is that oftentimes our mental health, it's, it's overlooked or it's just kind of put on the back burner because I think because it doesn't always manifest itself, you know, physically like like a heart attack would or or like asthma or you know something that manifests itself physically that would make us kind of stop and and take stock of it and just a couple statistics the national institute of mental health tells us that there're an estimated 3.2 million adolescents and those are children between the ages of 12 to 17 in the United States who have had at least one major depressive episode in their lives and of those adolescents suffering from um, major depressive episodes only about 19.6 received any type of therapy or you know other care from a medical professional about 17.9% received a combination of medical care and medication. But the more staggering statistic is that only 60% of adolescents received no treatment at all. And even more interesting is that, you know, we've seen a spike in depression and suicidal ideation in younger children. And so that's definitely something that as parents, we need to keep our eyes out for. According to the CDC in children ages 2 to 17, ADHD, anxiety, and depression are the most commonly diagnosed mental health disorders. And I know a lot of times we we tell our kids, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, it's just a normal teenage angst. Oh, it's just a normal, you know, adolescent hormonal shift. But sometimes it's not. And if you see your children are struggling in ways that they, you know, haven't before, it may be time for you to consult someone, a physician, a mental health professional, someone who can, you know, check your kiddo out and make sure that it is nothing more than teenage angst or hormonal changes or whatever the case may be. Um, So today we're going to be speaking with Oh my gosh, she's so dope. Uh, She's an award-winning mental health advocate and a depression survivor. Um, Her name is Dr. Jenna Dyson, and she's going to speak with us about her battle with depression, um, some of the ways she's overcome her struggles, how she advocates for mental health awareness, and turning negatives into positives. Like She's going to have some amazing advice about that. I'm super excited for this. Just some information about Dr. Jenna. 
Dr. Jenner received her Bachelor's of Science from the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns, in <laughs> Human Development and Family Studies. And she's also uh, obtained her Master's and a PhD in Human Services with a focus on mental health from Capella University. She is an Amazon number one bestselling author, a highly sought after, sought after motivational speaker, nonprofit consultant, transformational coach, and the creator and founder of the Think Up Academy. She's going to give us a little bit of detail on on kind of all of those topics. So we'll hear about her work with Think Up and her nonprofit consulting. And like I said, just really amazing advice about mental health, children's mental health, and some of the ways that we can transform our own minds into positive thinking. When she's not traveling the country, you know, transforming minds, she enjoys spending time with her husband, Anthony, and her three amazing children. Um, you can find out more about Dr. Jenna at her on her website at drjenna.com which will be linked in the show notes and in her feature on Instagram. So definitely check us out on Instagram and follow us at Hella Smart Movas on Instagram. We're also on Twitter, not as active. Our our uh, Instagram feed's pretty live and I have some pretty funny and often informational content on there. So definitely uh, check us out over there. Um, but yeah, so after the break, we will get it in with Dr. Jenna and get some amazing advice. So sit back, stay tuned. All right, all right, all right, all right. Dr. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us today. How's your week been? It has been amazing. And thank you guys so much for inviting me. I'm so excited. Like, I love this topic. I love kind of being in this space. So I am, I'm so honored and just ready to kind of energize and really transform your audience. That is fantastic. Have you done any, uh, any other podcasts? I have, I've done, you know, that was the funny thing. Cause someone reached out to me this week and said, how many podcasts have you done? I said, I have no idea. So I'm like, like oh, Yes, because I talk about a topic that many people in, in my community don't talk about, and that's mental right. health. Absolutely. And I talk about mental health from a place of like, let's remove diagnosis and let's talk about what does this look like in real life if you had to pull back the layers, if you pull back the sheet, if you pull back the onion, what does it really look like? So I talk about it in a way to where people they say, oh, hold up, this may be something that my child may be experiencing or my husband or even myself. So I think that's why so many people are kind of drawn to the brand that I've been able to create over the years because I talk about it in a very non-clinical way. How did how did you become so passionate about this subject? So it's really kind of kind of dual related. First off, it started with my own lived experience. My mother passed when I was 14 and I hit severe depression. Like I went from living in a middle class home to literally not having a place to go, not understanding why I was so angry, why I was so frustrated. And I remember getting diagnosed with depression at 17 mm-hmm. and it was the most weirdest thing that ever happened because I was raised in the church and I was raised in the black church. And my upbringing mm-hmm. said, girl, you black, black people don't have depression. You better pray about it and have some faith. So I prayed about it and I prayed about it and I prayed about it and I had a whole lot of faith, but this thing kept coming harder and harder and harder. And I was 21 years old, um, living at the university of Texas. And it was literally like my whole life collapsed. It was like everything in my world, it shattered. 
It shattered to the extent to where I was living in my closet for three months. I would not leave. I lived in my closet for 18, 19, 20 hours a day. I stayed in that space, which meant I could no longer go to class. I could no longer be involved in activities and organizations. The only time that I left was to go to my job because I knew that I had to keep the closet. And the closet had been my safe space. It had been the place to where I knew that I I couldn't hurt myself in the closet and I knew that other people couldn't hurt me. I was so frustrated, I was so angry and living in my closet was really that place that saved me. But on the flip side, it cost me everything because I lost every scholarship I had because I stopped going to class. My GPA plummeted, I had a 1.9 GPA. Yes. You talk about 1.9 and you're trying and you already know you got to go to grad school for what you're doing. Right, right, right. And it's like, what in the world? I was placed on academic probation and I was given literally this charge to like, I have to enroll in tutoring, but I also have to attend mental health counseling. And once again, those thoughts of like, girl, you're black. Black people don't go to counseling. Like, there's nothing wrong. You better pray about it. You better have some faith. So I was like, okay, what do I do? And it was so just to back up a little bit. So, so you got the diagnosis at 17. So between 17 and 21, had you done any type of treatment, any counseling, any medication, anything like that? No, I refused to do it because I read the information and the way the doctor presented it to me and it was hard because I'm from a small town Mm -hmm. and the doctor that I went to at the time was a Caucasian gentleman and Mm -hmm. he was just very he was very clinical he said Mm -hmm. you have depression Mm -hmm. you're gonna have this for the rest of your life there's no cure for it take this medicine but you'll be on it for the rest of your life and I'm like what in the world and then everyone that was in my community was like okay well that's a gateway drug they said if you start taking these if you start taking this then you're going to be doing heavier drugs and you're going to be addicted and I realized that that was such a like that was such a normal and a common stigma in the African community like these drugs are going to make you crazy girl they're just trying to make you crazy don't take that so I literally was going so I literally was literally like going crazy in my mind but I knew so well on how to show up on the outside I was a straight A student in high school like I was on the varsity basketball team a varsity track I was a stellar athlete I was involved in organizations so I knew how to put on this face and present myself well to the world but on the inside I was literally breaking and that's what happened in college. So I went to college with the same thing of like putting on the face that everything was okay. But internally I was breaking. And Did I was, you have any friends or family or anything like that? Did, was like, was anyone else aware kind of, of what was going on? Or did you really, like you literally just, every time you stepped out, you had the mask on. I think people knew that I was hurting, but I don't think people knew to the extent because I had learned early on how to pull myself together. Because what happens is like when your mom passes away, then you're in the state of Texas, you go to the next parent, to the next closest relative. Well, my father at the time was remarried and his wife didn't want me there. So that was not a place. So I knew that if I didn't stay together, I would go into foster care. I would be I would have to go into this system and stay there. So I had learned at 14 years old how to pull it together and how to pretend that everything's okay. I knew how to take care of business. I knew how to show up and make sure that I went to school every day, make sure that I had good grades, make sure that nobody knew that I was hurting because I knew the other side of that would be, okay, now you're going to be in this environment where your life is going to be worse. 
Right. But right. at 14, I was able to, to, to kind of grasp that. Like, I either pull it together now or my life will be drastically worse if I get involved into the system and I end up staying in the system. And so is that, do you think that that's a big part of the reason why so many people with depression kind of wear the mask? They think that if they say something, if they seek treatment, whatever, that they're going to be in a worse position? Yeah, I think many of us think that we are weak that we don't have good coping skills, that we can't handle the stressors of life, especially now in this social media world, when you see everybody on Instagram, they have perfect highlight reels. They're always together. They are building these amazing businesses and careers, and they have this, what it looks like a happy and a healthy marriage and family and friends. And you're like, well, I'm experiencing everything opposite of that. So that means that there's something wrong for me. And then when you're like a person like me, where you talk to psychiatrists and social worker and therapists, and then when you get into college and you try every medicine for anti-depression, like every medicine and you fail every medicine, then you're like, okay, I really am crazy. Like there really is no help. I really am going to be like this for the rest of my life. Like I really can't change this. So it just becomes to where it's like you almost accept, like you accept that being depressed, that being in this state, that this is what your normal looks like. And so one of the questions also that I had is once you, you know, you, you hit your what you call your rock bottom, but yeah. I'm just like a stage. You hit a stage. Yeah. I don't want to call anyone's life stage a bottom because no, I hit several rock bottoms. So I'm OK with that. OK, you hit <laughs> one of your rock bottoms <laughs> at 21. How did you pull yourself out? What did you what did you do? So I think the first thing was really receiving that mandate from my college of saying, I have to go to counseling and I have to go to tutoring. I think that was the biggest thing of me going, because when you are severely depressed and when you are hoping and you're praying to die because you don't even have the strength to take your own life, you need almost this mandate. So if I wouldn't have done that, my next step would have been a psychiatric stay. It would have been a psychiatric stay. So I think me going there to saying, okay, I can't lose my closet. You have to have something that you're motivated for, number one. So that's what I always tell people. Like, it it can't be what your family is motivated for. It can't be what you think you may want. It has to be something that you know. For me, it was not about a degree. It was not about grades. It was about, can I keep my closet? So if this is what I need to do to stay safe, then this is what I'm going to do. So the first thing was I made a decision. And so I started the whole two and I started the whole therapy. The therapy shift, which really shifted this whole concept, it happened when I was praying and I was in therapy at the same time. And I'm like, Lord, I can't do this. Like, I really want to die. Like, I cannot. Like, I like I won't be able to leave this closet tomorrow because I can't endure this pain again. And I remember that small voice saying, you got to think up. And I was like, I don't know what that means. It's like, you have to think up. You have to think about where you want to be. And you have to do everything that you can to put yourself on the path to where you can really create the life that you want. So that was the shift was going to therapy, but then also being in that place to where it was life or death. And I had to think up. And that's how this whole brand got started back when I was 21 years old of like thinking up. And thinking what does up- that mean to you? What does think up mean? So thinking up means to create the future that you want in your mind first. When we teach our kids, we, you know, and I always tell my little babies, head and shoulders, knees and toes. We say where the head goes, the body follows. 
Mm-hmm. So that means whatever you think is what you're going to speak. And whatever you speak is what you're ultimately going to become. So if you think that I am an attorney and I'm going to go and I'm going to be successful in law school, then you will be an attorney and you will be successful. That's just how it works. So thinking up, it's all about creating what you want in your mind first. Like living and dreaming that big audacious dream, that's number one in your mind. And then once you have it in your mind, then you can speak it. The hard part for us really is getting it in our mind. But once you can really think it and then you can speak it, then the next part of your life is just doing the work every day and showing up. So that's what Think Up is. And it became like this thing personally for me. And now it's a movement that has literally transformed my life and thousands of others around the globe. That is amazing. So how how would you say you made that leap? How did you make that leap from, you know, being so scared in your closet to wanting to take your life to thinking up? How were you able to find that your kind of North Star? So I always wanted to be a doctor. I thought I would be a medical doctor, but then I took like organic chemistry. <laughs> like, uh, never mind. But I always wanted to be a doctor. And even when I had that 1.9 GPA, even when my professor gave me back that paper and said, it's a big fat F, you're the worst student I've ever seen. <laughs> Even when I would stand and I would speak and do public speaking in college and I would stutter and I wouldn't be able to get any back in my mind, I always said that I was going to be a doctor. Like, and I called myself doctor when I was homeless because after the 1.9 GPA, I became homeless. Mm-hmm. So even after that, I'm homeless and I'm living in my car and I'm still like, well, I'm Dr. Jenna. And I would introduce myself as I'm doctor. And people were like, girl, you're not doctor. You're crazy. Like, you, like, like, you're not smart enough to be a doctor. Like, doctors don't look like you. Doctors don't speak like you. So I think the shift was I was so radically crazy in believing that I could be a doctor, that that's what I said. And I'm like, you know what? You don't have to believe it. I already know I'm a doctor, and this is what I'm going to do. All of my dreams have been so big that they look absolutely ridiculous. Like, they look ridiculous. Like, even to this day, I have a huge dream of giving a million dollars away, but in the next three years, I don't have a million dollars. I'm not even close to it, but I believe that it will grow when you get it. You can send some this way. (laughs) (laughs) But I am so, and I started, I started in January of like, okay, I'm not going to wait until I have it. I'm going to, I'm going to sow myself in that space. I'm going to give right now. So literally every single day I'm giving away to hit that million dollar goal. So I've always been that person that has had that big, crazy dream that really makes absolutely no sense. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, that's all I have to do is just think it, number one. And then I got to reverse engineer it. And I just got to show up every day and do small things that will put me in that space. So as parents, so you, you touched on something a little bit ago when you said that what you sow into your children is this concept of think up. So as parents, what do you think we need to be looking for, especially, you know, the statistics right now about children and depression are staggering. Yes. And I, I've, I've been trying to figure out if it's just that more, more like the social media presence and more exposure is leading to better analysis and, and increased statistics, or if the increased statistics is, is, you know, drawing more attention. So I don't know if it's a yeah. chicken or the egg kind of thing, but what, would you say as a parent, what should we be looking for in terms of 
depression and, and other mental health issues with our children because I feel like it's just it's especially in the black community it's yes, yes. you're bad or you're stupid yes. or you don't have discipline your parents don't don't yes. don't discipline you right or whatever like but it you know the brain is an organ yes it's like the heart or the yeah. liver yeah or whatever and it is truly my belief that you know your brain chemistry, your brain function can have problems just like your heart, just like your liver, just like your kidneys. And even though it doesn't manifest malfunctions in the same way, they're absolutely happening, but you can't see them. Yes. So what should we be looking for? So let's keep this very normal, very kind of let's take away diagnosis. Let's take away some of the clinical things that I talk about in different settings. And let's talk about it, what it looks like on an everyday yep. basis. So number one, any shift and change in a mood swing. So any shift to change, meaning if you have a child that was happy and now all of a sudden they're sad or they're frustrated or they're upset or they're irritable. Sign number one. There could be something going on. And we're not going to say it's mental health because it could be hormones. There are a lot of things that may kind of mimic that. So any change in a mood swing. Second thing is that you want to look for is a change in their academics or their extracurricular performance. So if they were doing really well in school and now they're not doing so well, then that's then that's a sign that there's something else going on. And then I and also the same if they have an extracurricular activity. The third thing is that I would really listen to what they to what they say about their selves and about their their future. Meaning if they say, well, I don't really like school. Well, I don't really like those friends. Then that's sometimes a kid's way of saying I'm unhappy with X, Y, Z. And right. sometimes they don't know how to say that I'm unhappy. My son, um, so I have a 14 year old son. He was diagnosed with ADHD, which is usually kind of the first kind of thing that we kind of see in kids. Um, he was diagnosed at the age of six. And what I saw in him then is something that many parents miss. My son is, he is an extrovert. He's a strong extrovert. He's a strong leader and he has a lot of energy. He's been in activity since he was two and a half years old. And I saw when he went to school, um, he had difficulty staying on task. He wanted mm-hmm. to lead the class. He wanted to teach the class. He yeah. thought that he knew more than the teacher. Oh, goodness. And, yes. And he was always, just always into everything. Not into everything in a mischievous way, but he always, he wanted to build. He wanted to mess with things. He wanted to get up out of his seat. And in a traditional school setting, sometimes that's not acceptable because they want kids to sit and conform. So at six years old, I started seeing these things. What made it cross over to this ADHD diagnosis was that it became to where he literally couldn't focus on one task. So we're talking like no more than like a six minute attention span. Okay. So that diagnosis of ADHD eventually led to um, him being diagnosed, him being on medicine, and and then we having to teach him the coping skills and how to maintain. So I think that was the first big sign for us is the inability to kind of sit and focus on a task. Mm -hmm. And then also being so frustrated at school. You got a first grader and most first graders love school. And then now he's always in trouble. So he's like, I don't want to go to school because I'm bad. I don't like my teacher. I'm always in the corner. So Mm -hmm. I think those things are kind of the red flags for what children are communicating when they feel like they're hurting. And so when you got this diagnosis, what, what kind of was the process? 
So the process in terms of how did they get to diagnosis or what did I do after? Well, how, how did they get to diagnosis? Because okay. I think that's something that sometimes people don't understand is that, you know, you usually have to get a recommendation and yeah. then you go see a doctor and then you get your, uh, what is it, E, I, E, I, E, yeah. IEP plan, like all of that. So, so, so the first thing was the school did not see him as a child that was hurting. They Mm -hmm. saw him as a child that was bad and Mm -hmm. misbehaving. So that was the first thing because I knew in my heart that this isn't this isn't typical behavior. Like my child has always been interjected, and I encourage that. I encourage kids to be sure. Sure, you know, I encourage like when you're at home, you can jump, scream, you can do whatever you want. This is your home. This is your playground, your safe space. So I think the first part that we had to go through is that we had to educate the school on like, no, this is not bad behavior. This is something else. So that was step one. The se- the second thing that I did is I didn't go through the school, which you can, and you have every right as a parent to go through the school. But I went through my pediatrician first okay. because I already had that relationship. So I had my pediatrician give a, a general diagnosis, and that's when she said it's ADHD then from there I went and I went back to the school and said okay this is this is a diagnosis from a pediatrician I want services for my child let's start that process so that process looked like the school doing their own diagnostic the school coming up with the same diagnosis and you always want to get at least two because you want to Sure that you have kind of two different opinions and expert status to look at it. So we did two. And then from there, um, the school said, well, you, you can either do a 504 plan or an IEP. They are generally the same. They just have different protections by law. We opted for the for the IEP, which is a special education status. And this was a hard thing for me because my son was also in a gifted and talented program. And you've heard just people saying, oh, you don't want to do special education because then he's going to be labeled. Right. But special education provided him the protection, meaning if he would got into a fight at school, let's just say he got into a fight Mm -hmm. under an IEP. They would have to look at it. And if they can say that this fight is related to his diagnosis, he can't be punished for that. Okay. Versus a 504, it's a behavior plan, which means, well, you misbehave. So now you're going to go into detention. So I wanted the protection. So I was an IEP. It's, it's the same way if a student came, if a student was visually impaired mm-hmm. and they forgot their glasses at home and they failed a test because they couldn't see what was on the paper. And you know that that child has glasses by law, the parent can ask for a retake. Right. That child has a diagnosis of I'm visually impaired and I need my glasses to perform. Right, right, right. So it's the same thing. So I knew that I needed to protect him because we were in a predominantly white area. He was one of the few minorities in his in his school, not even class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that I needed a little bit more protection as I educate them on this process. So I went with an IEP versus a 504. So let's dive into that a little bit too. You know, I have my own opinions. I have two little black boys that are going to be, you know, going into the public school system. They're in a private school right now that is a minority owned school. It's a Spanish immersion school. And so 90% of the teachers are of color from Latin American countries. So I feel I have a a sense of, of, of more of a belonging for him there, as opposed to when we move over to our neighborhood elementary school, which 
great school, highly rated, got all the gold stars and all that that you look for, but it is predominantly white. And statistics obviously show that black children are treated more harshly, both behaviorally, and they're also diagnosed at a higher rate for for things like ADHD and and the autism spectrum and and all of that. And, And so do you believe that your son would have been given that diagnosis as early as he did if he were not a child of color? Oh, absolutely not. No, I think if he would have been, um, cause he also went to the boys and girls club after school. So his after mm-hmm. school, so he was in this predominantly white environment during the day. And then his after school was the, was, um, the boys and girls club, which was mm-hmm. predominantly African-American Hispanic. And he was a stellar student. So it's like you go from being bad, quote unquote, in one setting. So here it's like, oh, my gosh, he's awesome. He's a helper. He's this. He's that. And do you think it was actually a change in behavior or just their perspective, knowing that, you know, all children don't act the same, first of all, and that, you know, I don't want to put a label or stereotype or anything like that, but that black children or brown children or children of color, let's call them children of color, might be a little bit more active or, or yeah. they might speak a little bit differently or they're in different environments or they might talk louder or they might talk out of turn and like that kind of thing. Do you think that that was kind of the difference? Yes, it was definitely cultural perspective and expectation because and this school um, that he was in, the expectation was you come to school, you sit down in your seat for eight hours and you read and you write and you learn versus in the other setting. It's like, well, kids are going to be kids and they're going to play. They're going to get out of their seat. They're going to raise their hand. They're going to be impulsive. That's a part of us training a child on how to behave versus you don't punish a child. So it was, so it was the culture perspective and expectation that played a huge role. Did you, did that, oh, I'm sorry. Did that change kind of how you interacted with like the teachers and the principals and everything like from that point forward or, or how has that been? So it was actually, um, so once I kind of started seeing kind of both environments and seeing how his behavior would be um, normalized in one setting, but then mm-hmm. criminalized in the other, mm-hmm. that really sparked me to like really learning wanting to learn more and being a researcher, I was like, you know what, I'm going to figure this out. So I started working with his school and started training teachers on mindset management in the classroom, because you have to understand it from a cultural and from a mental perspective before Mm -hmm. you can deal with it on a behavioral perspective. And actually me working with his teacher and then the cohort of teachers and then the grade level teachers, which was fourth grade at that time, Mm -hmm. this this boosted my business. This is how I launched my company because I saw tremendous changes in that on that campus and they started referring me to other campuses and that's how my work got started. So now I own a training and development company and part of the work that we do is that we educate teachers and counselors on how to work with think up kids and think up kids are kids that are exceptionally talented. They are gifted. They are amazing. They are our leaders, but these kids also, they may not perform well on standardized tests. 
these kids may also have a little bit more energy than other kids. These kids may also want to lead the class. That's and, and that's what I call it. So I don't call anything of like disrupting. I call it like they want to lead the class. So how do we create a space for them? So now that's what I do. Part of the work that I do is I train educators on how to really cultivate a think of classroom. So, for example, Dr. Jenna, I might be calling you in a couple of years. But it was one of those things. I'm like, my son was a talker. He liked to talk. He liked to talk. He liked to tap. He liked to help other people and get out of his seat. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very disruptive in a classroom setting. So instead of punishing him for that, why don't we give him an an incentive? He loves to talk. He loves to lead. He loves to help other people. What are the ways that we can leverage those gifts and skills in a classroom setting? So, Oh, well, he can teach. He can teach a lesson. So the incentive went now from, okay, if you talk, you're going to be in a corner or you're going to get your color change to, you know what, if you can be on task, if you can stay with five stars on Friday, I'm going to let you teach a 10 minute lesson. So that means every day this week, you need to be preparing for the lesson you're going to teach. Oh, wow. That's such a good idea. So it went from him not wanting to talk to his friends, be like, no, because I'm going to teach on Friday. Like, no, I'm the teacher. So it shifted. Same. It was the same behavior. We just leveraged it in a different space. Same thing. That is such a good idea. Same thing. Another thing, because he likes to be out of his seat. He likes to be out and he likes to move because he is a kinesthetic learner. So he Mm -hmm. has to learn with movement. So another one of the things was, okay, well, he likes to organize things. Well, there's tons of books that need to be organized. So when you are on task three days this week, I'm going to let you go and color code the entire books. And now you're responsible for keeping the classroom library in order. That is so fantastic. I love that so much. Like you literally just channeling that behavior into something positive. And like you said, not making it a punitive thing, but really making it a positive thing. So we don't lead with punishment. We don't lead with color changes. We lead. So you have to plant the seed. Mm -hmm. So you have to tell a child what you want them to do with the expected result from it. So you don't, I don't want, if you talk, you're going to get your color change. No, when you, when you stay on task and follow the rules, you're going to get a reward. Now that child starts looking and seeking those rewards. They start right. so for those things. Positive reinforcement. Like I do believe that kids respond so much better to positive reinforcement as opposed to like punitive, yes. you know, punishment all the time. Punishment, you know, and and our our kiddo, he's young, he's only four, but we noticed the shift in his behavior a little bit in his pre-K uh two class where he was acting out his teacher was sending me you know emails text messages every other day about how he was hitting and and pushing and and all that kind of stuff and that she was putting him in time out and saying she was going to call me and like all this stuff and so me and my husband we sat down and we're like and and there it's more of an academic based school than a play based and he had moved from a play based and so we were just like ooh i don't know like maybe this isn't the right environment for him right now like maybe when he's a little bit older a little bit more mature so we spoke with the teacher and we were just like i don't think we're handling this appropriately mm-hmm. you know i feel like he he's acting out because he feels like he's always going to get in trouble mm-hmm. so why not 
Like if I'm going to be able to do what I want to do, then I'll just do it. And then I'll, I'll suffer the consequences later. And I was like, at home, we try very much more to be rewarding where if you do a good thing, then you get some, some reward that you want. And I mean, natural consequences of life. You do something good. You generally get something good as a result of it. You work really hard. You get paid for it, like whatever. And so we, we kind of shifted that and it was, literally a world of change within like a month period so yeah I really really like that that is part of the training that you do Absolutely. and 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 part of the mantra that you have even in your household yes. so I have another question so speaking on in terms of of kind of how you choose to discipline your child obviously a little bit different than the typical uh black household and the children stay in the children's place like I've had some conversations about that recently where because that's not how we roll like we're not a child should be in a child's place you spoken to don't speak like all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff I hate that I think it's horrible that's not how you raise adults but like how have you shifted you know your family's expectations of that because I feel like that's often a big thing where you know you'll have the the aunties and and the grandmas or whatever and they're like oh you don't discipline that child because he's always acting crazy you know (laughs) like whatever yes we got all of that when he was first kind of on this journey of you know being really young that boy's he's spoiled he needs a whooping he needs Mm -hmm. So I think for us, I think the biggest thing that we have learned to do was understand and respect their opinions, mm-hmm. but then to let them know, like, well, no, there's a reason that he's doing it. So everything is education. And we always, and like, we are a family of purpose. So everything that we do, we do it because we believe in living and leading a life of purpose. Like that's number one. So even with my son, we always remind him of like, is this aligned with your purpose? So we started talking purpose with him when he was like five or six. Mm-hmm. Meaning like, like he's always had this affinity for homeless people. He wants to give them money. He wants to give them things. He's like, why are they on the street? They shouldn't be on the street. They should be in a house. And so we've always kind of kept that conversation. and said, well, just like, well, maybe you're the, maybe you are here to help provide housing for homeless people. So everything that he does, we tie back to how does that help homeless? So even with basketball now, he's like, well, I know that I need to use basketball to go to college so that I can build houses for homeless people. I know that I'm just not going to history class because I have to do history for a star test, but I'm going to history class because this is one step closer to where I can provide housing for homeless people. So everything that we do goes along the lines of like vision and purpose. And in terms of kind of the behavior shift, he would, if you would see him, not now, but if you just saw him probably like three years ago, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that child is so annoying. Like that's what we probably- I think all kids are pretty annoying once they start talking. So (laughs) I'm not a good judge. People would have said, however, we say, oh my gosh, you're so anointed. That means that there's something special about you. There's a gift. You are a leader. Do you know that you have been called to serve? You know, because let me tell you- that negative to positive. I love it. So in third grade, um, and I've always taught my kids how to read a map. So when they turn like three years old and we go to the zoo, you get a map and which way do you want to go? You want to go left? You want to go right? So they learn at an early age how to read a map. So in third grade, he got a map when he went on a field trip and he took five of his friends with him and they left. 
So they stayed home for three hours. The school was like, search. So, yes. When they found him, they put him in timeout. And he was like, thank you, because we've seen everything. We're tired. (laughs) So when they called me, and that was not the conversation, because he didn't tell me that's what happened. Um, so I said, I said, just like you told me you had a great day that you saw everything. It was great. He said it was He's like, I did have a great day. They didn't have a great day. <laughs> exactly. That's what he said. He's like, no, he said, you asked me how my day was. You didn't ask me how my teacher's day was. It probably wasn't good. So <laughs> I started asking how everybody day, how was the janitor's day? How was the crossing guard's day? Like, how was everybody's day that you have that, that you came in contact with? So. I started to remind him of all the times where he's taken kids off on field trips where he has done things and people have followed him. I'm like, you're a leader. That's what being a leader is. You have influence. So now as a leader, you have to make the decision, do I want to influence him in a positive way or a negative way? Mm, okay. So that's kind of just the language that we use to kind of shift the behavior because I don't want him to be focused on the consequences. I want him to know that there is a consequence to your behavior, but you can create the life that you want right now by you making a decision decision in your mind sure and consequences don't have to be negative consequences are literally just the natural occurrence that happens after an action so i definitely i I am in love with kind of the way that you choose to shift what could be negative into a positive and and as parents as mothers we definitely need to to keep that mindset you know our kids are not perfect we're not perfect I absolutely hate it when I see like parents like you didn't fix your attitude and I'm like girl I just saw you cut somebody out like stop it like they're not always gonna have the best attitude and we should not expect that of them just because they're children because we don't always have the best attitude absolutely and it just, I, I just absolutely love that way that you teach your children of, you know, if you do something good, good will come from it. If you're doing something that other people think is not good, let's shift it. Let's yeah. shift it to make it into something good. I love, love, love And that. if you think that you're going to do something that's not good, then let's take a timeout. So timeout in our house is something that we all do. Adults, I do timeout. Like if I'm about, like if, like, like if kids are on 10 and I'm mm-hmm. about to mommy's taking a time out and then and so now they know oh well mommy's gonna get in trouble if she doesn't take a time out absolutely so now yep. they embrace the whole concept of time out because it's not something that they just have to do it's something that i do because mom needs to reset so time out for us is a reset it's like how we push a reset button and we start over so you're gonna okay. go and you're gonna reset and you're gonna start over and we all have to do this love this it love it being mentally healthy we rest our bodies. We rest our bodies here. We, uh, you know what? We need to go take a minute it. and rest our body. <laughs> rest our bodies. Rest our body. Rest I our body. Let's go take a minute. Yeah. So that's what we do. Because yeah, I don't like I don't like the concept of standing in a corner or staring at a wall or like whatever yeah. that's supposed to be. But I'm like, if we're gonna have a timeout. I like that. We time out to regroup get ourselves together, take some deep breaths and then rejoin, <laughs> rejoin the fam, rejoin the fam. Um, so I'm going to ask you one last question. Cause man, we've been chatting for a minute. Oh I love it. Love it. You've given us so much amazing information. Like, our guests have been fantastic with this information that they've been dropping and you are definitely one of the best. Appreciate that. Thank you. I've had so much fun. Like this is because I feel like this is something that we all experience. Like I feel like we all have mental health. 
positive or negative. Now, illness will have, but we all have mental health. And I think the more we talk about it and the more we learn and the more that we can find this normal understanding of it, like, you know what? Like, if I can just shift some things, then maybe the outcome would be different. So I just love really empowering people and really kind of shifting the narrative about it. Well, hell, you just answered the question that I was going to (laughs) ask. How do we how do we help in the stigma of mental health? Did you know that May is actually uh, is. mental health awareness month? And so, you know, I really think this is a timely discussion. We're definitely going to get this up uh, in the month of May because yes. of, of that. So, OK, let next question. I'm going to go off the dome. What would you say is the worst, the worst advice okay. that you got about your depression? And how did you handle it? Oh, that's good. I think the worst advice that I got is that I'm going to have to be like this for the rest of my life. And how did you handle that? How did you respond to that? I handle that by, and this is just a part of me always, of just kind of becoming a trivia question and not another negative statistic. I did the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I'm going to create the life that I want. So I'm going to use this struggle with depression to free other people. So I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to normalize it. I'm going to bring it to the to like the boardroom. I'm going to bring it to the corporate space. Like I'm not going to hide behind it. Like I'm going to be like proud. Like, hey, I'm a Ph.D. I run an amazing company, a global company. And I also struggle with with depression and anxiety. And it it is what it is. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. And when I started freeing myself from it, I saw other people say, oh my gosh, that's me too. So it almost became to where it was like people was like, oh, well, okay. Well, if she talks about it, I talk about having a therapist. I'm a therapist. It's like, babe, my therapist is everything. And I'm okay okay with having a therapist because therapy does not mean something's wrong. It means that I'm committed to keeping everything right in my life. Yes. You know, I'm really happy that so many more people in public spaces are talking about their use of therapists and counselors. Like I listen to tons of other podcasts and Mm -hmm. almost every single one talks about their, their relationship with therapy. And I just, I love it. I know the first time I saw a therapist, I was like, so like I put, you know, I was at work and I had, I was like, I have a doctor's appointment. I'll be back. Yeah. Low key, like you know, my friend. I had a, a really close friend that worked with him. Like, is everything okay? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. You know, and I just, I didn't feel comfortable at the time, just straight up saying like, yeah, I'm going to go see my therapist because I need to get my life right. <laughs> like, I need to get it together. And like now, fast forward, I don't know, seven, eight years, it's so much more normalized, even in our community, which you know before. <laughs> It's, you know, it's so funny. It reminds me when I was at UT, you know, I went to the mental health counseling center, which is the fifth floor. And I remember being there and people would be on the elevator and I would never hit the fifth floor because I didn't want nobody to know that I was going to the fifth floor. So I would be like, oh my gosh, I missed my stop. And I would just get off on a different floor and then I would wait. Because I didn't know. And then oh. now, fifth floor, please. <laughs> okay. Now I'm when were, when were you at UT? What years were you at UT? Because I think we were there at the same time. I just think our paths didn't cross. Yeah. So I was there from 2000 to 2004. Okay. I was 2002 to 2006. So yeah, we were okay. definitely yeah. there. 
and I like we have tons of mutual friends. Yeah. I didn't know you at the time. So I'm so glad you. that our paths have lost and definitely want to keep in touch and hopefully we'll be able to bring you back and talk about yeah. some of your other amazing endeavors and accolades and amazing information because yes. you did that girl. You did that. Well, thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Jenna, again, this information has been beyond invaluable and I appreciate you taking the time. I cannot wait for all of our listeners to hear your amazing advice. All right. Well, thank you. And as always, I always like to end everything that I do. Think up. Think up. All right, ladies and gentlemen, mothers and mother lovers, we'll talk to Dr. Jenna another time. Thank you wow. so much. Wow. So yeah, man, we covered a lot of topics with Dr. Jenna, <laughs> more than I had even anticipated. Talked about her daily triumph over her depression, <laughs> removing the stigma of mental health, positive affirmations for our children, just you know what she's doing in her um, think up work. Like I'm, I'm super happy that she uh, did this podcast with us. It was really, really great. Um, if you guys have any questions or want any more information, please follow Hella Smart Mothers on Instagram or shoot us an email at askthemothers at hellasmartmothers.com or at hellasmartmothers at gmail. Definitely would love any questions from you guys. Or if you guys have any additional show topics like we're always up to hear that any suggestions feedback that you have we love it all so i just want to take a moment again may mental health awareness month i just want to take a moment to consider you know how many people are failing to receive treatment for their mental health disorder and unfortunately you know kind of like jenna and i discussed many are failing to engage in treatment you know, due in part to the stigma associated with mental health disorders. So we really have got to do a better job with with decreasing that stigma. We have to remember that just like a disorder in our heart or our kidneys or our liver, you know, whatever, the brain is also an organ and it can function improperly at times. And no one would ever question someone receiving treatment for heart failure or renal failure. And we have to treat our brains in the same way. We have to remember that it's still an organ. You're not weak. You're not, you know, a failure. Who cares? If you need to have treatment, if you need medication, the brain is an organ and it doesn't always function the way it's intended. And that's okay. Please, please, please. If you need help, seek help. Yeah, great show. Really happy that we had this conversation. So next, I want to give my gold star and my timeout for the week. So for my gold star, part we, we kind of brushed uh, you know brushed this in the uh, conversation and I want to give it to therapy <laughs> there are so many options now for therapists you know if you don't have time to go to a traditional you know therapist's office in person and sit on the couch lay on the couch whatever you think okay people generally do not lay on the couch I just want to put that out there you usually sit in a nice chair if you want to sit on the couch it's cool but you don't lay on the couch so for people who have not been in therapy just don't walk in there and like kick your shoes off and lay on the couch unless that's kind of what you're going for. <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah, you know, there's just so many options for therapy now. There are online mobile options like Talkspace and BetterHelp. 
Doctor on Demand, just to name a few. And I've, I've never used any of those, so I can't you know, fully endorse them, but I know people who have, and it seems to serve its purpose. If you need kind of a sounding board, great, great option. Even if you think your life is going perfectly fine, you know, sometimes it just helps to have a disinterested third party that can listen and weigh in and give you some, you know, tips on how you could be better. Like who doesn't want to be better? I've seen a therapist both individually and my husband and I have used a marriage counselor and best believe both were worth every single penny and every single second of my time that I committed to them. You know, don't let stigma deter you. There are probably so many more people, you know, seeing a therapist than you think. Even if you just kind of see on pop culture, mainstream TV, mainstream radio, podcasts, everyone's talking about their relationship with their therapist. So it's really not some crazy person, shrink your brain, lumbotomy or <laughs> whatever fest. It's literally having, it's 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 like a, a friend who gives really damn good advice. And we all know while we love our friends, they are team us <laughs> and don't always give the most objective advice. So keep that in mind. And yeah, therapy, gold star, check it out. My timeout this week is going to go to a concept and it's failing to extend grace to other people. And by grace, it's really just, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt, golden rule, do unto others as you'll have them do unto, you know, that whole thing. Just really treating people how you'd want to be treated, even in spite of them not being so kind to you. You know, a lot of times we just, we have no idea what is going through someone else's head, you know, when we have a negative interaction with them. And well, nine times out of 10, that that interaction, that negativity, it has absolutely nothing to do with us. And, you know, we were kind of all just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, when that happens, as the person receiving the negative, the negativity or whatever, you know, we have two choices. We can either choose to engage and escalate the situation, which in my opinion is generally the wrong choice, <laughs> or, you know, we can extend grace and we can let it go. Or we could even, you know, truthfully and kindly say something back to them. Like, I'm really sorry you're having such a rough day. Let's try this again another time, whatever, just something that's kind and something that you would want someone to say to you if you were having a rough day, that the interaction that that person just had with you was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back and made you go off. And now listen, don't confuse this with being a doormat. Because sometimes you need to get folks all the way together and snatch some edges. So I'm not saying in every interaction where someone is mean and ugly to you for you to roll over and just take it. That is not what I'm saying. But definitely choose your moments wisely. Sometimes that person who's having that rough day that just bit your head off literally just need one person to extend them some grace so that they can kind of turn the, the course around on their day. But yeah, so let's uh, let's go see a therapist, folks. I, f- I feel like if more people went to see a therapist, we'd have much less negativity and uh, those bad interactions. <laughs> um, and yeah, putting mean, nasty retaliation 
failing to extend grace in the corner for a time out. All right, mothers and mother lovers, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Hella Smart Mothers. Man, I'm I'm so excited that you know you guys are really liking the content and our guests. And uh, please definitely, if you like it, tell a friend, subscribe, give us a five star rating, all the things. Um, also, head on over to our Instagram and follow us at Hello Smart Mothers. So, you know, we just want to help you make this hashtag mom life look easy. All right, guys, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.